Okay, now that the cute girl in the front row has taken her seat, we can begin. Let's see, who else is chatting? Okay. Have you had a good week? I hope you have. For some of us, it's been a really awkward and difficult week. For others, it's been a painful week. For others, uh, it's been a week of victory in Jesus. And others, it's been, you know, when I survey the wondrous cross and I think I'm on it. But, um, yeah, it's been a, uh, a hard week. Um, I hope yours was good. Got some interesting and, and uh, wonderful and creative feedback last week after speaking last Sunday, Sunday morning on the subject of disciples and forgiveness. And we love feedback. We do. We, we thrive on your feedback. And whenever Sharon and I, and there she goes, whenever uh, Sharon and I um, get up to speak, we've always come to the pulpit with, with the intent. We haven't always conveyed this well, but... Uh, when she or I stand here to speak, our intent is to not have the last word on a matter. Our intent is to have the first word because we believe that whatever is presented, uh, in spite of our struggles with delivery or, or uh, what may be, we believe that the first word on the matter starts us to think. And as we think, as we express our doubts, the Holy Spirit begins to minister where we need it. Again, you know, we don't stand here presuming to have the final answer. We are just being faithful to what God wants us to, to bring in a sermon or a message. And it's important to remember, especially now that we're considering the way we live as disciples of Jesus, that we are just a body together of broken people sharing one another's hopes and dreams and struggles and victories. We struggle together. So when we stand up here and, and we hope to start discussions with the intent to, to push a little forward, to start the wheel moving in your own heart, your own mind, because we know that the Holy Spirit will have the last word. It's our duty to listen and to learn from him. Now, the person who emailed me last week posed a number of, of what-if scenarios surrounding forgiveness where um, sometimes matters of forgiveness aren't always quite so black and white. And I, I really, I thought it was creative feedback. It was helpful. And it's true when it comes to forgiveness. There's a lot of things that aren't quite so black and white as maybe I, I um, portrayed last week. And some of their comments and observations we may try to tackle in the next couple of weeks. But what I found in their observations was this certainty. Forgiveness comes with responsibility for both the forgiver, the one giving forgiveness, or the forgivee, the one who receives it. If forgivee is not a word, 
uh, our trade market later this afternoon. And we began last week by asking if you've ever heard somebody make this comment, whether it's been on TV or you walked into a room and you, you just happened to overhear this, the comment being, and they call themselves a Christian. Have you heard that? Have you seen it on TV? Have you watched reporters shaking their heads, saying, <laughs> you know, they call themselves a Christian? It's always said in those moments, in minutes and days following an episode where I, as a Christian, have not lived to the standard that Christ has called me to. When you and I call ourselves Christian and then fail to live like it, we unleash all of these unkind comments. And deservedly so, because in a very weird twist in our culture, in this world, an unbelieving world somehow inherently knows how Christians ought to act. And when we don't act that way, they call us on it. They take, <laughs> many people take great joy in calling us on it, don't they? But we bring it on ourselves. We used this quote last week from Brennan Manning. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. I can amen that. The world expects to see in your lifestyle and my lifestyle and the lifestyle of people that call themselves Christians a life that would remind them of Jesus. Somehow, someway would attract them toward the life of Jesus. But many times we don't. We don't live that way. And we've been building on this idea for the past several weeks that people who call themselves a Christian often live their life in one of three ways. As a believer, as a disciple, and there are very few among us that we would call an apostle, somebody who God has specifically chosen for a specific task and sent them to proclaim the good news. And the thesis that we've been working on over the last several weeks is this. While every disciple is a believer, not every believer is a disciple. It's very easy to say we believe something, isn't it? It's harder to live it and live it authentically and live it openly. A disciple is a learner who commits to order their life by what they say they believe, by what they come to believe. When Jesus recruited the 12, we talked about this last week too. He didn't approach Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Matthew and ask them to believe. He asked them to what? To follow me. He called for their discipleship to come to him as learners before he ever asked them to believe. Belief would come later. And as we acknowledged last week, for some of them, belief, even at the very end, even as Jesus was leaving this world, 
Some were still struggling with it. In Matthew 28, as Jesus is preparing to go, Matthew wrote, Then the eleven disciples, that's Judas, went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. The same men who had witnessed miracles, the same men who knew Jesus had raised people from the dead, the same men who walked through crowds of thousands with baskets picking up leftovers, still had doubts. And apparently Jesus made allowances for their doubts. And as we move forward today, we're going to look again at our need to face the importance and the power of forgiveness in the life of the disciple. Because both forgiver and forgivee, the one who's asking for pardon and grace or the one who's receiving pardon and grace, for both of those people, forgiveness is freedom. There is nothing that frees us whether it's in our relationship with God through Jesus or our relationships with one another, there is nothing that frees us like the power of forgiveness. As we said last week, in our minds, I'm going to move this. The um, stained glass is shining right here, and I got one very bright spot. So we said last week, in our minds, we have to separate these two ideas of we have to separate forgiveness from fairness. We have to separate forgiveness from justice. Forgiveness is not just. Forgiveness is not fair. And true forgiveness, forgiveness from the heart, doesn't hold those expectations. If I forgive Sharon for that nasty thing she said, never. Forgiveness doesn't make a demand. I'll forgive you if, or I'll forgive you when you make things right. Forgiveness doesn't demand that. True forgiveness, heart forgiveness, does not demand those things. And in fact, true forgiveness overcomes those things. When I from forgive from the heart I don't need justice I don't need fairness because forgiveness is freedom when we ask for justice and fairness when we ask for someone to atone for their bad behavior all we want to do is even the score but forgiveness goes so much farther than that. It goes so much further because forgiveness works at the soul level. In a disciple, someone who is following hard after Jesus will learn to put into practice unconditional forgiveness. Unconditional forgiveness. Even when it costs you something. Because forgiveness is freedom. Ephesians 4.32, forgive one another, forgive each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. 
And a very common question that surfaces when the topic is forgiveness is this. In fact, it's such a common question that one of the key disciples asked Jesus this question directly. In Matthew 18, Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? And we know what Jesus' answer was. No, not seven times, but 70 times seven. What Jesus is saying is the math is not important. The number of times is not important. And Jesus went further. He wants to help them understand this fundamental. And he wants them to grasp this fundamental quickly. So Jesus uses a parable about a kingdom. And when Jesus would relate ideas and stories and parables to life in a kingdom or life in the kingdom, it was very helpful for his listeners. In the United States, we're not quite so in tune with what kingdoms are like and how they work and how they intersect. But for Jesus and the disciples and his listeners, it's all about kingdoms. This is what they would have known. A kingdom has a king. The king alone sets policy and law for his kingdom. The king's policies establish the expectations of the subjects who live in his kingdom. The king is the ultimate authority over his kingdom. And living in this king's kingdom comes with the expectation that you will live in a way that honors your king. And finally, what's ordinary policy? an ordinary way of life in other kingdoms may not be the case in this kingdom. So when Jesus relates things to a kingdom, all of these things, all of these things that they have known from birth, yeah, king, authority, this is how we do it, all of that would have resonated with them. And Jesus goes on to give this parable. The kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. Okay, So in this kingdom, this kingdom has a generous, caring, and merciful king. This king is not a tyrant. This king doesn't have his hand inside your wallet. This king is generous. This king will listen to your story. He will take things into consideration in this kingdom. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him a million, who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold, along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned, to pay the debt. Which sounds appalling and awfully cruel to us, doesn't it? But this was a common practice in the Roman Empire. If you couldn't pay your debt, you were taken into slavery. You were sold. Your assets were sold. They would take whatever they could get. 
So this wouldn't have been a strange idea to Peter and the disciples who were listening. This is the common practice in other kingdoms. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me and I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him and he released him and forgave his debt. Millions. The king of this kingdom has a heart. The king of this kingdom's heart can be broken. The king of this kingdom's heart can be filled with pity. The heart of this king can be moved to act of incredible mercy and forgiveness. The king of this kingdom prefers to forgive rather than punish. This is the way of the kingdom of heaven. The man walks away forgiven. He stood on a street corner and in Dave Ramsey style, style said, I'm debt free. Right? That's, that's not what happened. When the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant, a peer, who owed him a few thousand dollars. He didn't hurry home to tell his wife and family the good news. He didn't just happen into this guy on his way walking through town. It appears he went straight for him. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it, he pleaded. But this man, who just moments before had been given forgiveness from the king of this kingdom, showed no mercy, showed no patience, showed no pity. He wanted justice. He wanted immediate justice. So the second servant says, be patient. I'll pay it. You'll get your justice. You'll be treated fairly. Verse 30 says, his creditor wouldn't wait. It doesn't say couldn't wait. It says he chose not to. He wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. I don't know how many times I've read this story, but there is this one moment in the story where you think, wait a minute. Nobody, Christian or atheist or agnostic, nobody after hearing this story thinks, so what? Everybody who hears this story, you feel it, I feel it. We, have, we feel offended and angry, don't we? There's that part of our heart that says, what's going on here? This is wrong. This isn't right at all. And that's how we should feel. And see, our heart is not offended over the fact that servant number one 
didn't get his money. Yeah, and, and it's true that the second servant did owe the first servant. And the first servant had a right to expect that payment was coming, should be given. I mean, fair is fair, right? Yet in this parable, at this moment in the story, it makes fairness and justice look very petty, doesn't it? We're offended, we're shocked, we're angry at the lack of, not justice, forgiveness. We're offended at the lack of forgiveness. Forgiveness is the policy of this kingdom. Forgiveness is the policy of our king. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset, just like we feel right now. I don't know about you, I feel angry. They went to the king. See, this king is approachable. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Why were, th why were these fellow servants upset? Because the king has established a new measure of righteousness that goes beyond fairness, that goes beyond justice. The new measure of righteousness is that we can stand before him forgiven. The king, the king has established a new policy called forgiveness. His heart will break on our account. His heart will be moved by our condition. He longs to give us forgiveness. In this kingdom, forgiveness is greater than any justice. And mercy is greater than any fairness. God is so good to us. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, you evil servant. I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I have mercy on you? This might be the policy in another kingdom. This might be the policy on the other side of the border, but not here where I rule and I reign. Then the angry king. The angry king decided to give him fairness and justice. He sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. And at the end of this parable, Jesus makes the consequences crystal clear. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Forgiveness is civic policy in the kingdom of heaven. As we have been forgiven, so are we to forgive. 
we are made righteous in God's eyes and we're able to enjoy the kingdom of heaven here and now in this moment with this heartbeat because of God's forgiveness. And we put our souls in peril when we refuse to offer or seek forgiveness from one another. We put our soul in peril over our own stubbornness, over our own obstinance, over our own desire for fairness and justice as we see it. And as I've been praying about this this week, I don't want you at risk. I don't want you at risk. And you may feel the need to, to say to me, yes, but you do not know what they have done. You do not know how I have been abused. You do not know how I have been shunned. You don't know how I have been abandoned. You don't know, you don't know, you don't know. And that's right, I don't know. But what I need to tell you right now is through our lack of forgiveness for one another, we are completely vulnerable. Because what we do is we put in, we put in jeopardy, not, not God's love for us, but we put in jeopardy his forgiveness. Jesus says it. That's what my heavenly Father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. I don't want to find myself ever again in that place. I've been there. I have been there. And I have walked some uh, into some very unfriendly situations asking for forgiveness from people. And it wasn't fair. But at the end of the day, there was freedom. I don't have to hang my head. I don't have to, I don't have to fear seeing them on the street. I don't even fear what they may say about me in the future. Because between them and I, we're squared away. We're going to continue to look at some of these issues and some that were brought up in the, the uh, email that I got earlier this week. But in this moment, I'm, I've got to ask you, who is it that you need to forgive? And when I ask this question, uh, I have sat where you're sitting for a lot longer than I have stood where I am now standing. And when a minister asks that question, a face always comes to mind. You know who you're on the outs with. Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to ask for forgiveness? Throw, throw fairness and justice out of the equation because forgiveness trumps them all. Who is that person? I was talking to Doug Hanneman earlier this week and uh, talking about this whole subject of forgiveness and, and he reminded me 
of the Sunday we had Doug sitting up here on the stage talking about how he had finally gotten to the point of freedom and forgiveness when it came to his brother who'd been on the outs for years. A great day in the life of our church and a great testimony. Who is it you need to forgive? Who do you need to ask for their forgiveness? Again, this isn't about fair. This isn't about just. This isn't about right. It's about the policy of this kingdom. This is the way that God has ordered it. If you want your life to thrive as part of his kingdom, forgiveness is part of the deal. Forgiveness is part of discipleship. As we close today, we're going to do things a little bit differently. We're going to use our altars um, this morning. As I said, it's been a tough week. A tough week, and we know of situations that have been very hard, uh, hurtful, needless. And we want to use these altars at this time for a public, corporate dumping of our burdens onto our Savior. Who's willing to carry them for us. And I'll ask Marcy to come up and, and play a little bit. We'll just take a few minutes. But I know how, how hard some of you, uh, how hurt some of you are this week. I'm going to spend some time here. We just need to do this. We just need to do this. We need to leave these things that are so so damaging to us and so hurtful. We need to leave them here and walk away from them. He will take them. He will deal with them. So, Marcy, if you could come. And then afterwards, um, we'll receive some directions for communion and uh, food for the
your tenderness, for your mercy. We thank you that you are our king. We thank you that we can approach you freely through the shed blood of Jesus who washes us. We thank you for forgiveness. We thank you, Father, that we are not alone. In fact, you have asked us to come and share our brokenness with you, to share our burdens. Father, those problems that we just can't uh, wrap our minds around, the things that are so hurtful to us. What a privilege we have. Father, I think of these servants who could just walk in and speak to the king. How neglectful we are sometimes, Father. We don't take advantage of that. Every time that we have come and met with you in prayer, we have known your welcome. We have known your presence. We have known your heart. Thank you for this. As we approach this table now, Father, that represents your son's sacrifice, Jesus, who was obedient to the end and beyond, we thank you that he endured the cross so we could know forgiveness. we take the bread and drink from the cup, we recognize that it was an, at an extraordinary cost that we were forgiven. Help us, Father, to be forgiving people, not justice-seeking, not demanding fairness, but laying all that aside, laying it all down, living at peace with one another. So, Father, as we come to your table this morning, may we honor you by our lives. We thank you for these great gifts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.